0: This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is your host, Nabil Mahmoud from Kona, Hawaii.
1: This is your co host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is
2: Tony Wanger dialing in from Scottsdale, Arizona.
0: Tony, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start with your background. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what do you do? Thanks. And thanks to you both for uh, having me on today.
2: Yeah, I grew up, born and raised in Chicago. I began my career um, as a, a corporate lawyer, corporate and real estate lawyer. Went in-house with a client um, by the name of Sterling Partners in the 1990s and haven't looked back, haven't uh, practiced law in a long time, but got involved in what I would call Chicago-style private equity, which um, in those days, at least, was recurring cash flow businesses, very sticky, very EBITDA-driven, so everything from billboards to antenna farms to yeah, on and on, a variety of um, primarily business to business services companies. So I bought and sold those radio stations and found myself in Phoenix, Arizona in the late 1990s. Um, the, I had a really good friend in New York City who's a real estate professional and said, I was, I was telling him about this big, empty, crazy building I found in 1998 in Phoenix, Arizona. It was the newspaper printing plant at 120 East Van Buren currently owned by Digital Realty. Um, and we were looking at it for all sorts of uses in residential, in those days we had a very active, adaptive, reuse, value-added real estate practice. And as I looked at the building and I was talking to a friend in New York about it, he said, well, you gotta go see the 60 Hudson. I mean, it sounds like, like a smaller version of 60 Hudson. And people just show up at that building and lease space and they don't even want TIs and they mostly don't even want to let the landlord in the door. I'm like, well, that sounds like a great deal. Um, so, spent some time in New York researching Carrier Hotels in 60 Hudson and 111 8th and you know, 32 of the Americas and on and on and um, ultimately wound up acquiring the asset. We, we put it on our contract in Phoenix, Arizona in 1998 and closed in 99 and um, conducted an uh, adaptive reuse in which we uh, created at first a Carrier Hotel and then as some of the telecoms struggled make it fair to say they struggled, in sort of late 01, early 02, we pivoted a bit to enterprises. We had all sorts of service providers, hosters, um, uh, GoDaddy was here in town, and others saying, well, I need this amount of space, or that amount of space, or how do I meet such and such carriers or ISPs? So we combined the carrier hotel uh, elements of 120 Van Buren with what was essentially in those days a Enterprise data center space. Um, you know, typically, you know, one one and a half megawatt deals in those days were a pretty big deal. We're talking about you know, early two thousands era, and uh, landed some terrific names, some big Fortune one hundred types, and that got us into enterprise colocation. I think relatively early, and we were able to establish uh, an early. I won't say the only, but an early mover advantage, and we just kept running. Um, Sold that, and I'll take a breath here, and you can ask any questions. But sold that asset in uh, 2006, uh, six, and then had the right to start over in 07, which we did January 1st, 07. We launched a new company called IO Data Centers.
0: Tony is a three-time serial entrepreneur, and the, the history that is shared is all in and around data center space. I got to know Tony roughly about 98 or 99 time frame. So Tony, being a Chicago corporate Lawyer to getting into real estate to getting into data center I mean what were those transition points for you to get into technology? what made you transition into tech versus fairly nice career in law yeah
2: it's a good question fair question I, and and i'll I'll use the words that I think my friends and family used which was I became obsessed with the internet um, I didn't view it as an unhealthy obsession, but it was clearly an obsession like this is huge this is working this is growing and I'm very quantitative and data driven and i'm Trying to understand things like number of users and registered users, and how does all this work? And the more I learned about bandwidth and both well, first circuits, right, and then um, bandwidth and hardware, and sort of just had a two a fantastic partners, both engineers who get we joke. We're not, I'm not sure if I learned more electrical mechanical engineering in 20 years, or they learned more corporate finance. Probably a jump ball on that because we ultimately combined. A real interest in the space with fantastic sort of, I think, um, engineering and 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 sort of practical engineering, resiliency engineering, um, and then money. Because everything in the day, I, you guys have heard me in some of the industry conferences. I believe, you know, a significant portion of this riddle these days is finding the right capital partner, the cost of capital, the duration of capital, I think is a huge issue. Are people in it for two years or 10 years you have very different strategies available depending on duration so anyways that's how i got into it is i just became completely fascinated by it and like i said had a a, a great experience in tangible assets so radio stations literally the tra- we sold one radio format to a group but sold the actual transmission infrastructure to a different group and the same thing with um real estate and outdoor signs and antenna systems, I grew to really appreciate the competitive differentiation and advantages of being an owner of assets as opposed to a pure services provider.
1: You know, I think one of the things that's so uh, incredible as we interview all of these, you know, uh, thought leaders in our industry and yes, um, Tony, I'm considering you a a massive thought leader uh, in our space. Don't start blushing. Um, The, Something that always comes back to me, and part of it is the fact that, you know, you kind of were at the right place at the right time from a timing perspective when we can can talk about that and how much of it is kind of luck versus uh, skill, but there's a certain amount of creativity that comes with you know, seeing these spaces and, and trying to even putting together these, these deals that, you know, um, are kind of outside the box. And I think, you know, what, what you're describing in terms of, you know, finding the right space and, and all those things, it takes a certain amount of creativity that you wouldn't necessarily, like someone thinking about the tech space or the critical infrastructure space or the legal space, wouldn't necessarily put creativity as a, a top characteristic of what, you know, makes someone successful. In that space but you know i i i feel that um in in talking to, to a lot of folks and i wonder how much you think you know that you know th- there's a creative element to trying to you know kind of see these assets and and think outside the box in terms of you know how to you know structure a deal and and effectively utilize them in in ways that you know aren't necessarily you know mainstream at the time
2: i completely agree with you and i think For me, right, I was coming out of a private equity investment firm. But what's interesting, and it's it's occurring daily in our space now, right? Which is, there's always sort of core institutional top-down investors who have a lot of capital, are allocating capital, and they're super smart, so they're looking for opportunities and they're looking to avoid sort of known risks or whatnot. And then I think there's always a bottoms-up crowd that's somewhat obsessed with just the business and the customers. And you need those people to grow the business up and, frankly, ma- make all the wins and losses and make mistakes, which we certainly did and everybody did. And then at some point, it becomes investable by a broader group of more traditional sources, right? Whether they're lenders or landlords or equity investors or whatnot. Eventually, once you iron out as an industry, some of the wrinkles, those people come in. But I always sort of view, Phil, that the, the sort of creativity to me is a, a corollary to sort of bottoms up. The reason we were successful in the data center space, I think, I I would say is because we were obsessed with customers, period, full stop. We ran the business for our customers, not for other people. And um, that worked. And especially worked at a time where there was a lot of uncertainty, Um, right? Some people were saying they'll never outsource. I mean, I remember a big financial institution who you guys have heard of, was they would never virtualize. They just felt that it was um, an un. They had enough capital that they didn't need to ramp up utilization, and they'd rather have you know more, more, more servers and more capacity. And at the same time, I had you know we used to joke. So sitting in our first asset was in Phoenix, Arizona. You come out the door. Our joke was you know sort of if you if you went to if you went to the west if you went to your right nobody cared about tier four anything ever, which is uh you know a fault tolerant, you know, 2N plus system. Uh, you know, the, there were people virtualizing, there were hosters, you know. But, um, you go to the East Coast, it was the opposite. Everybody was tier three, tier four, you know, somewhat old school in architecture. And, and um, you know, we used to pick up circuits to LA. I get a gig port point to point eventually now for under a thousand bucks. And then so-and-so giant corporation would show up with an $85,000 a month AT&T bill. And so it was just this fascinating vantage point um, of of seeing. And so we decided to go with the upstarts. How do we do this better, smarter, faster, more reliably? Um, George, my partner, engineering background, was fond of saying, anytime I see, you know, four, six, eight of something, we should have less, less of them, but bigger. So air handlers, generators, right? It's just like, you know, aircraft, the seven 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 makes it across the pond with two huge engines, right? And it's efficient. And so there's economies of scope and scale. So we just kept dialing it in. and and that also included in customer acquisition and and I think very importantly, I give this advice all the time to folks who call. I do some advisory work now and whatnot, which is focus on account management more than sales, right? It's great to sell stuff. You should hire salespeople. Everybody should sell stuff. But really, what we learned over the years is if you're really good to your customers and you have a consistent look, feel, and most importantly, service level, they'll grow with you, right? Everybody's got the same problems. I, I don't think as an industry we realize how hard our customers' jobs are. And you guys know what your and it. your are technologists. And this is really hard. 24 times forever, really hard. Um, never having an interruption. You know, people, the internet is a bad day and people call you, what's going on with the internet? The internet's down. Well, I'm like, the internet's not down, but, you know. Your primary upstreams having a bad day. Why don't we, you know, move you over here? And, anyways, long answer to your question. But I think that just solving customer problems with sort of a can-do and creative attitude was the key to the biz. We sort of let the money and the exit strategy over time sort itself out, which it took. I mean, I it took 25 years, but I think it's mostly sorted out now.
0: You know, that that leads into another interesting question as it entails the exit strategy. Uh, You raising capital for the the two initial initiatives, that is Sterling and IO. What was the initial agreed upon uh, strategy? Where was it like a three, five, 10 year exit? uh, Or were you always seeking a longer term?
2: No, so both assets, both businesses were capitalized with private equity, which, you know, has benefits and burdens. the benefit was these were folks I know really well who were just super smart and sort of leaning in, and you know they'd rather take a little bit of risk with the chance to make twenty percent returns than no risk and the chance of four. It's just not the business they're in. Some people are in that business, and it's a great different business. But so the private equity, you know, I think what do they say? I I, I think companies start to look like their capital sources a bit, just like you know the dogs with their owners, kind of uh, uh, analytic. And, you know, we were pushed for growth. We were pushed um, for metrics, right? Key metrics. How do we track it? But assuming we did those things, I will say our partners were terrific about maintaining flexibility on, on timing and duration and also acquisitions. We, we So I haven't gotten to the IO story yet, but so we launched in 07, built in Scottsdale, I'll just sort of preview this. And then we went and acquired a huge building, 550,000 foot building um, that I found driving around following um, power lines. I'm like, where are all these power lines? Uh, They never string up new 69 kV power lines. They were going to a water bottling plant that made it not 60 days, went out of business, and we wound up acquiring it, brand new powered shell. But the point was in December, late December 08, when... You know, uh, Lehman Brothers was imploding and GE couldn't make payroll and whatever. We did a 50 plus million dollar private equity capital raise. So looking for a benefit there, you know, that's a hard raise to get done. 50 million bucks in the when everybody thinks the world is ending, you know. Private equity stepped up and wrote a check, which was fantastic and somewhat game changing for us. So. That was our experience with it.
1: All right. So everybody has to chase the $50 million checks. So, so far, that's what, uh, that's what I get. That's well,
2: I, I apologize because I skipped. <laughs> that was not our first round. Our first round, you're right, was friends and family and us. And I mean, our first one was a bootstrap, period. Straight out the money we had, figure it out, bootstrap it. Um, we literally were getting back equipment from the telecoms who were bankrupt and selling it. I, I mean, in those days. Um so, the you know, the very early days of 120 Van Buren, even before my operating partners got involved, was pretty much of a bootstrap. Um, it evolved into a more like the industry into a better segmented sort of easier underwrite, right? Retail, wholesale, enterprise, network versus the other thing, we were constantly fighting and my, my partners and I felt very strongly, again, a couple of engineers and a money guy we should be talking about KW. We got to stop as an industry talking about footage. Nobody cares about footage. It doesn't matter. It's, it's like asking how much the data center weighs. It's just who cares. It's an irrelevant metric. Um, and so again, because that's what our customers were seeking and buying was capacity, was density, was runtime, was resiliency, and all those things ultimately are denominated in KW or the K, you know, right? It's at least the key input into the equation. So.
0: So being a money guy, how have things changed over the last 20 years of you being in tech? Are investors and private equity guys more receptive to now making investments in technology? 20 years ago, we were the guys that were hiding in the stairwell uh, trying to get some attention. Now we've got all the attention. How have things changed? And what are some of the lessons that you have learned that you can share with our listeners?
2: Great. Well, for First I'll, not that you need it, but I'll I'll, re, I'll emphatically revalidate and validate your question, which is it's changed dramatically. It's changed to a hundred percent, which is in, and and I, here's some, I guess, quips or anecdotes. You know, I would show up for meetings with either lenders or equity investors. And I'm like, well, what do you work on? They're like, oh, marinas, golf courses, you know, and um, the, the, the rock climbing walls. I'm like, oh, great. Well, I run data science. We were an alternative asset. Nobody had ever heard of it. Nobody, if they could possibly have cared a little less about it, I don't know how. They, lenders, well, what do, you know, technology, I don't know. That's going to change a lot. It'd be scary. I'm like, I don't think so, guys. And, I mean, I had a discussion with the world's largest owner of B Malls, strip malls, one-story strip malls in America, massive, massive institutional owner. And they were asking me how data centers were risky. And I'm like, you're buying stuff at literally 15 to 20 times earnings. You have to have a directional bet and perspective on what the world looks like 20 years from now. I like my side of this bet. I think it's going to look more digitized, more connected, more uh sort of gpu over the top driven and much less retail mall-ish he disagreed
1: and and those guys and those guys were like uh, i think the future is blockbuster video i think that's gonna be what takes us into
2: yeah and they're totally phil and they were like also really and again i think these are all lessons learned and maybe they you know tech sounds i don't know if it sounds scary or sounds off-putting but um I think, again, the, the people who did the best dove in from the bottoms up. And I can name them. You know who they all are. But I mean, they're, they're now literally running several of the data center businesses you know, in the industry, which is they got really good at building just as good of a data center at a better price so they could hit a better price point. They got really good at capital raising. I mean, I say this all the time about uh, Bill Stein and Digital Realty. The, the the conveyor belt of money that they built is the most impressive thing I've seen in my career, other than maybe the hyperscalers. Um, right. Incredible. They just never stopped building because they never ran out of money.
0: Right. 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 Well, Everybody thought-
2: else was,
1: Yeah, I I think one of the issues in general, particularly from, let's call them civilians, I know we're not particularly military here, but let's just talk to people outside of the tech space is you think of tech as this all encompassing thing. It's like all buttons and computers and lights and all that stuff, when in reality, like the critical infrastructure element of it, you know, the, the the plumbing and the the building and and all of those things are actually you know incredibly stable in terms of you know how they support ongoing technology. So if you make a if you if you recognize that yes, technology in and of itself is ever evolving and continuing, especially now, um, to to play a prevalent part in everybody's life, everybody's vertical. The notion of like the place where that technology needs to live, uh, not being a safe bet is absurd.
2: I completely agree, but I, I guess I'd ask you guys too, because you're both you know, very learned in this and, and knowledgeable. I, I think it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding. And, and I used to quip, I have all these little quips, because they, they functionally became discussions with providers of capital. But I used to joke at some of these conferences, there's nothing virtual about the virtual world. Nothing, right? It's a gigantic collection of tangible assets and cables and conductors and transformers and on and on and on. Um, And I think once people got their head around that, this industry really started to attract capital and take off sort of. But people didn't realize that the internet, just like every other utility we rely on, requires distributed, tangible infrastructure, except that And and in some respects, what we do is—I don't know if it's particularly harder than what the power utilities do. That's a really hard job too. What they do is keeping the lights and the air conditioning on all the time. Um, But it's that left. But I mean, that is such a trusted and important societal function that, right? It's heavily regulated. It's often owned by in a lot of countries, and even in the U.S. by by states or sovereigns or others. Um, or non for profit state monopolies or whatever. Um, and ultimately, I think we're learning, certainly through uh, the coronavirus pandemic, that digital infrastructure is at least as important. Um, I mean, I asked my kids. They they would rather the water go out for eight hours than the Wi-Fi. No-brainer question, if you ask them.
1: Uh, I haven't asked them about power. I mean, they also, I, they also live in the desert, so I'm not sure that's a fair... Uh, That's a fair question, Uh, but I think you touch on an incredibly important point, which essentially encompasses one of the primary reasons we launched this podcast in the first place, and that's to demystify the world of technology and to demystify what we do so, you know, the greater populace knows that it exists because, you know, now we've kind of skipped over, you know, people thinking that, you know, technology, oh, it's just a funny toy bells and whistle to this time where people think that you know the thing on their phone is just on their phone it's not you know connecting to a place that's connecting to another place it's et cetera.
2: etc. Bill I couldn't agree more I'm, I'm this is a pound the table moment for me which is that I used to go into meetings in New York and to raise capital and ask everybody to put their phones in airplane mode and you know I get up the eye roll and they'd look at me and okay what is this goof doing I said, great guys how so what you are holding in your hand is a data center access device Right. In airplane mode, it does very, very little. I think the calculator works, but most of the other apps don't. Um, and right, it's a So is your iPad. So is your laptop. So is your TV. So is your car, right? this is now pretty well understood, but it wasn't 10 or 15 years ago. They're all data center access devices. Um, I would make and the so, case that and, it's but again, well no one ever
1: looked past the phone though to your yeah, point though. of course and I think that it's still it's it's certainly well understood by you know the folks that have started lending money to the space and recognize the you know the the you know EBITDA multiples that they can get and the recurring revenue and and that model so there was a financial incentive for them to understand it I still don't necessarily think it's understood by you know the vast populace that that uses these devices um, and I think that's where you know the, Bridging the gap in in that level of knowledge, is what is what's going to get a significant amount of kind of fresh blood to recognize that this is the industry, and in almost more so than finance or legal or 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 some of the more traditional um, you know uh, avenues uh, pathways to success that uh, that the younger generation have taken. This is the industry that is you know going to catapult you into the stratosphere for for many reasons not the least of which is you actually get to make a tangible impact on you know things that you use in your daily life it's not just spreadsheet manipulation and pivot tables and 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 moving papers around nothing against finance or or, or law
0: you know, I, I think culturally, we have started to evolve as well. We came to a screeching halt when the third industrial revolution came into place, whether it be education and or any other profession. Being in the industry that we are in, I call it the data rush time, just like the gold rush was. And and the fact of the matter is that technology has evolved everything. Oil and gas that used to be the, the major commodities traded, are no longer the major commodities. Data is the major commodity. I mean, on on any of the indexes that you look around the world, it's the alphabets or the Facebooks and other tech companies that are leading the chart. So we, we have evolved. And I think a part of it also is that the old guard, that old mindset, whereby we're gonna do business the old way we used to measure our success with the number of cars in the parking lot or the bums in the in the seats to now it being a digital world. And I think COVID has actually proven that. Times are evolving and it's time to make investments, serious investments into technology because this is the future. I completely agree. And it, what's interesting
2: to me, if we had a whiteboard, I would whiteboard it. But in order for an industry to take off, you need some alignment, I think, between sort of the the people and perception of the perception is somewhat evolving, right? But the people, the tech and the money that, that Troika, if they can sort of align, because again, right. E-commerce and delivered groceries were called web van in 1998. And it didn't work because maybe the tech wasn't there. Um, maybe just people's willingness to I mean, I still have friends and family. Who are like I don't touch online banking. I'm like, seriously, like you go to a bank. Like I, I don't go to a bank. I just, I don't know, do online banking. And I think, but at some point, all of these things align. And and I think the pandemic was a massive catalyst to that because people that, I mean, I've got, you know, parents in their eighties doing online grocery ordering and for the first time trying to figure out Venmo, um, you know, and so it was a huge pull forward. I think of demand that frankly either was pulled forward or was created because those people were never going online. Otherwise, maybe generationally or otherwise. And then now you've got kids who don't know, I mean, kids, haha, I'm getting older, but you know, my, my college age kids and their friends have never known a life any different. My daughter was born in 2000, right? The iPhone launched in what? Oh, eight, Oh nine. Yep. So, With every day, the people who are starting to inhabit professional jobs and and, at at law firms and accounting firms and investment banks and fortune, you know, multinationals have never known it any other way. And so I actually think I'm one of the few I think we're actually underestimating um, where this is headed and how grand the demand is. Um, One of the things to demystify tech a little bit we used to say, like, tech, technology is not a department, right? It's not one thing we go put over here in Cleveland and let them deal with tech, Te- right? Technology is the entire enterprise. It's how we communicate with our customers. It's how we track our performance. It's how we stay in touch. We had a glo- so I didn't get to IO, but we launched um, December first, 08. Um, pardon me, uh, 07, built Scottsdale, built Phoenix, built New Jersey, built Ohio, built Singapore, built London. We're going to other markets. Point was, we had a very broadly distributed growth company, which is hard. Growth companies are hard when you're all locked in a room. But when you're all over planet Earth, and even finding a time to talk, it's hard. Um, Tech was the sole enabler of that. We could have never done it without tech. For me to jump on a plane and go to Singapore for 10 days and then come home, if I was in it would have been very difficult for a startup growth company, or at least a growth stage growth company. Um, so, and then I, I, I think people are starting to realize this, right? Tech matters to healthcare. It matters to entertainment. It matters to banking. It matters to uh, media, news, you name it. There's nothing it doesn't matter to. Um, so I don't think it was perceived that way 20 years ago. No,
1: there's there's no there's no question about it, and I, you know I, I I see parallels right now. Um, I don't want to turn political, um, although I will for a moment in you know some of the argument about like uh, there's a, there's an infrastructure the, a definition of infrastructure that's going on in Washington D.C. and this notion that infrastructure just means like bridges and roads and tunnels versus. You know technology and broadband and and you know uh renewable energy and you know all of these like disparate things that you know we have evolved to a point where there is a broadening of you know how infrastructure enables our lives certainly if you're you know rural versus urban versus suburban and access to connectivity is you know a key element of, of infrastructure that might not have been there you know 20, 25 years ago the last time there was an actual successful infrastructure week. And in the same same way, um, you know, technology is no longer relegated, like you said, to, you know, a single point of an organization. There is no vertical, there is no element within an organization um, that you can think of that is not enabled by by tech. Um, uh, maybe janitorial, but even they have, uh, you know, iPhones all over the place.
0: I think we're all in agreement with the fact that technology is the core of any business. It's the driver, it's the enabler, and it's how we make things work. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll slightly not
2: debate it, but I guess, no, t- I think that's right. I think that's the best practice. And I think in 2021, that's become mostly apparent, but it is incredible to me how many people over the years I talked to who sort of thought, well, you know, the new the, the data center is a department. I mean, so my IO data centers which we launched and built, blah, blah, blah. Our biggest customer was publicly disclosed all the time was Goldman Sachs, big financial, Right. And then, but we would wind up getting calls and talking to other big financial institutions. And the difference in how they approach the technology element and integration into their business is just st- staggering to me. Some of them felt it was the whole business. Some of them felt it was a great way to enhance service levels. And other people felt it was a department that some other guys running. And, you know, I have nothing to do with that. And I th- I'm, I'm positive that the ones who were in the first categories are more successful just because they adopted these great tools. I mean, I'll just share with you. In my personal life, I just moved uh, my uh, post. You know, I sold everything. Blah blah blah. And I have an IRA, and I rolled it over to a 401k that, or 401k that I rolled to an IRA. I, I happened to be at two different financial institutions. One was click click boom, and one was three and a half months of analog. It, you guys need to get this notarized and drop it at my office. And it's just it was just staggering to me. And I would never do business with the latter again because they're just broken, but I don't think they know it, right? It's like a fish swimming in water. They don't really know they're in water, but the folks who have adopted tech are putting massive distance between themselves and the ones who haven't that we knew about, right? We could look at everything from, you know, the hyperscalers and others. But they're starting to put distance between themselves and their competitors because of capital structure, right? At this point, the market's saying, okay, these big tech guys, tech is binary. It wants winners and losers and ones and zeros, and, right? If you think about it, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, could you guys describe to me their competitor, excluding the five and the five? Like, who are their competitors? I don't have competitors, really. Um And so the market figured that out much like a venture capitalist would and said, well, I'm really focused on total addressable market, right? Tam, I want to get into big markets. I want to get to the first mover. I want to get to people who have a huge advantage and go all in on them. So, But the point is, you now almost have public and other markets almost venture or prospectively funding good ideas, right? There's nothing that Google, Amazon, Microsoft couldn't launch. They have hundreds of billions of dollars in cash. Let, let, let me say that again. And
1: more than, more than most I mean, countries. I mean, they, 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 saying,
2: need, right, yeah. they have more cash than the entire United States, fill and the Blake, industry is worth, right? Whether it's travel or railroads or hotel. I mean, it's. I don't think people are quite getting the scale of it. So if you want to get into tech, you have to be incredibly good and incredibly focused, right? look at things that are jumping off the page like a clubhouse or a TikTok, or a rob right you have to be a a category killer best in class app if you just said well i'm just going to be sort of a generalist and offer tons of different services like you can try but that's a tough deal
0: once as it entails to financial institutions that are uh, acknowledging technology and, and and making these user experiences easier and better. You know, we've seen other stories with Blockbuster and Netflix. We've seen it with Sears and Amazon. Uh, what do you think is the core driving factor? I mean, who, 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 who is keeping them behind? Who is keeping these institutions behind and not keeping up with the pace? It's a great question.
2: Um, themselves, I think, right, institutionally, a risk aversion develops. And the the it used to be that the worst thing you could do as a CEO, a public company CEO, is miss earnings by two cents and everybody freaks out and takes 5% off your market cap because, of I mean, this just happened to a guy in the data center industry, no names, you could figure it out. Um, but they signed two great leases, but they didn't get them booked in Q4, so they're going to show up in Q1. As a private company guy, like I could care less. If a customer needs 17 more days, like you guys know, you're not going to force them to take Capacity they can't use, or the carriers not that right. But on the other hand, the, the public market still react to that, like it's a big deal. I think that's a challenge, right? I think that's a misalignment between what the investors think they're getting and what they're actually investing in, because as a private investor, I'd be thrilled that they sign these two great leases. I don't again, the rent commencement date is not really the point to me um, on a long term, but again, it goes also back to your time frame. Right? If you're a seven to nine-year investor, 17 days doesn't matter. If you're a trader or a hedge fund or an or maybe it does matter. I don't know, I guess. Um, but I I think we're seeing them every day. I think that the people who are better adopters of better tech, that's two things. So not just adopting tech, but good tech, good user interface, right? Right. Um, and I always, I think they're outperforming and I know they are because they're going to churn less. It's going to be easier for them. I've recommended this this one group I used that was so useful, you know, what a great app to three other people. I'm a net promoter now, right? Like just, they're easy. Click, click, click. And so I think over time you're seeing almost a have and have nots develop
0: from people who are leveraging the tech. Do you think there is a generational gap as as it entails to the leadership, the companies that are making these strides, like Musk, for instance, by profession and trade, he is a technologist, so he's made massive changes, and he's running his business as a technologist, not as a finance guy or a typical CEO. Whereas you know the guys that were running Sears, they are the the old Chicago corporate CEOs, uh, they are not technologists, and Bezos surpassed him and became the you know, the, the richest man in the world. Uh, do you think there's that generational gap that still exists in corporate America?
2: Absolutely, but I think it's probably more than generational because I would say that, um, you know, if you look at Sasha Nadella or Jeff Bezos, right, there are people of their generation. I mean, those so those guys are rockstar, amazing technologists and futurists and and, and leaders. And then there's probably people of their same age or generation who are maybe doing a less good job of adopting. But I, I think one of the things that's amazing to me is how people, and this gets into the public markets, So how do we measure and gauge risk? What does risk mean, right? Same back to the mall guy. Oh, data centers are risky. I'm like, well, you're sitting on a billion dollars worth of bad malls. That strikes me as risky. But he thought what I did was risky. And so I think coming up with sort of common understandings, common definitions, because like even in the public markets, volatility and risk are literally separately measured. They're different things. Just because something goes up and down doesn't mean it's risky. It means it goes up and down. It's volatile. Right. There's so instead of focusing on the guys who are not or the 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 leaders who maybe aren't moving fast enough, I we could call out some who are. And when you see them, it's just astonishing to see how much advantage they have over their industry when they get good at this. And I, I guess I would share with you like, you know, some were clear computer science technologists but not all of them were plenty of them were business people or i mean jeff faza i mean there are plenty of people myself i was not i did not come of age with an i.t background but i threw myself into it because i where i saw the opportunity so yeah, I, I guess that. i'm what i'm saying it's never too late to to to, to, to sort of pivot towards the future
1: and I think it dovetails into a great point, like all, all great apps, like what, 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 what Bezos did and um, uh, what what a lot of those kind of transformational disruptive organizations did at their core was they tried to solve a problem that existed, that, you know, existed in their own life that they, you know, and that dovetailed into something else. You know, he thought that there was a better way to, to buy goods and distribute them leveraging the internet. And then internally they had to grow at such a fast pace that they ended up. Developing a cloud for themselves, and they're like, "Oh well, this costs us a lot of money, and this is really useful. Let's start marketing this to to other people uh, and take it to the next level." Um, it's there's I don't know what the word is. I don't know if it, you know it's risk versus you know not having fear of the unknown, not having confidence in oneself. There there's there are characteristics I think that you can pinpoint, but at the end of the day, it's not being afraid. To, you know try to figure out how to solve a particular problem that you have in your life that you might think is only yours and recognize that you know this problem exists for you know let's call it a market of people um, and if you start looking at every like aspect of your life and different problems um, that you're trying to solve whether you're a programmer or, or, or an engineering guy or a tech guy or not, You start looking at it in terms of, you know, how do I make the things that I do on a daily basis more more efficient? How do I solve this problem? You know, how is this problem being solved for me? Then you can sort of take the 30,000 foot view of what... Differentiates, you know, the the companies that have embraced um, technology because they have not tried to hide those issues, but they've tried to solve for some of those problems and made, you know, their their businesses better and and something that people uh, uh, appreciate and 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 not. I don't really know what the question is, but at the end of the day, I think there's there's something there um, that that you could pinpoint that is a a characteristic or trait that if people embrace, because everybody has it everybody can recognize their own problems um, and problems that they have on a daily basis. If you can articulate it, then, you know, there's, you, you can, you can find some real value.
2: Yeah, so I, I agree. I think I would add to that, or maybe just supplement that I think a lot of it is cultural, right? If you and your boss and your boss's boss are rewarded for leaning in and finding great new vendors. And, you know, for example, back in the day, I know you guys were both accomplished uh, internet um, guys. I mean, right, like not using a Cisco router was a big deal, right? I'm going to go to Juniper, you know, and, you know, or on and on and on. Virtualization, right? It's new, it's different, it's risky. Um, In some cultures, they're like, wait, you mean to tell me we can get 6x the utilization out of our current servers and not buy another one through software? In some organizations are like, we're giving that a try because, right, the price per trade or the price per month or the nut, right? All of those things are going down. I, I've got to keep pace with with my revenue on my expense side. Or and on the the other, resilience. Other, I mean, there's
1: a million different yeah, ways yeah. to live,
2: right? Right. But on the, other, on the flip side, Bill, like some of the col- corporate cultures are, if you pick the wrong vendor, you get fired. If you, um, you know, cancel it, uh, I don't know. I'm just saying if you throw away the lobster tail and bring the, the customer a new one, You know, in some places, your boss pats you on the back and says, that's great. Keep the customer happy. And in other places, they say, what are you, crazy? You just throw away a perfectly good lobster tail, right? And so it really depends on the culture or the vibe, I think, of the organization. Are they leaning forward? And again, the only reason to do any of this stuff, the only reason to pick different routers or new technologies or the answer to me, right, is your customers. If it makes you better, cheaper, stronger, faster more resilient, maybe it's worth doing If It's not worth doing just for no reason, right? There's it,
0: technology is a tool. Indeed, at least a tool set. Indeed, you had mentioned earlier about this gentleman, uh, that's in the BMO business with COVID-19. Uh, is he thinking about getting into the data center business? Since no one's actually able to go to it's the money?
2: It's a great question. I don't want to call anybody specific that. But I'll say this: virtually every single I spent okay, so IO, and I didn't give you the full IO story, but we built and attracted capital, attracted capital, attracted capital, attracted capital. I'm doing this by round. Attracted capital, refinanced, right? Attracted capital at IO, literally. And so I met a lot of people all over the world, pension funds, sovereign funds, private equity people, real estate people, on and on. And the answer is, they're all immensely interested in data centers right now. Incredibly so. I, I think one is it. An asset class that made a lot of sense and that had a more attractive sort of return um, yeah. heuristics than some of the other asset classes. But number two is the pandemic. If nothing else, has just put a giant um, magnifying glass on this. Everybody's numbers. You saw them last, a year ago today, right? Everything was going up. I mean, so I, I did a prezo for an industry group in which parking, cars, tolls, student housing. Um, I mean, on and on, every traditional category of, uh, infra, gasoline, right, was, was having a very hard, um, season a year ago during, uh, the coronavirus initial lockdown. And everything online was going crazy, right? I mean, more downloads, more e commerce, more telemedicine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, They have now are almost, I guess, back to the the discussion that Phil uh, introduced earlier, it's sort of this cultural thing. It's now risky to not be in the space. Wait, everybody else is in the space. Why aren't you in the space? So I think that there's really been almost a binary type flip here where infrastructure and other investors, tech investors, are expected to be invested in and highly literate around the data center and high capacity fiber networks. Um, by the way, Phil, this is for ISPs and fiber. All of a sudden, are exciting to people, and 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 people are realizing like the data center to do anything if it's not connected. Um, but do we agree that's been a more that's been an evolving uh, understanding?
1: No, no question about it. Um, fiber, fiber does more than
0: just help you digest. Tony, you you've said share some great thoughts uh, and very interesting career from being legal counsel, corporate law, to uh, getting into real estate, and then technology. Share with our listeners your, your journey and and some of the good practices that you have deployed in your personal and professional lives, like things that you do that make you different. And how do you keep up with tech?
2: So I'm a voracious reader. I'll start there. I, um, I read a great deal. I read People, I love Twitter because, like you guys, I can see people who I think are great and smart and keep up with what they think, not only generally, but about a specific event, a current event, a question. So, and then I read a fair amount of long form articles. I, you know, having sold the business, I'm in a unique opportunity where I've got a little more free time than I used to. But so I read newspapers from all over the world. um, And I really enjoy the varied perspective that I'm able to gather there. In terms of like personal habits, I'll say, I am a huge believer in preparing for meetings. I never walk into a meeting without having done a significant amount of research. What was the firm or the person or the customer's recent news? Are they acquiring a company? I, I found in a meeting if you say to somebody, hey, that's really terrific. I understand you guys are merging with your you know, Canadian um, you know, uh, distributor or competitor. How is that gonna impact your IT roadmap? How does that impact me in the data center? Let me really think hard with you about that. They appreciate that because again, everybody could use help. This is again, I don't think people appreciate. One is as a globe, we were behind, right? We were sort of behind on catching up to internet and data center infrastructure because it's sort of come in fits and starts based upon capital availability. Two is just the organic demand story. I mean, even at a a multinational that's not a growth company, their data is growing twenty percent compound a year easily. And when I say data, I mean their stored data, their bandwidth. They decided to launch, you know, a customer portal. On and on, you know. Every smart online marketing person I know will tell you that uh, imagery kills words, and video kills imagery. Right. That's so everything's headed in that direction. So one, I would say, there preparation. Really understand the meeting you're going into. Really understand the industry and what is it that the customer is trying to solve. Two is, and I don't know, maybe this is career advice. My big path to becoming an entrepreneur, founder, and growing the biz was by taking a series of job uh, uh, salary cuts in a row. Like I left a fancy law firm to go to a private equity firm where a lot of the comp was variable. Like if you had a great year, they paid you, and if you didn't, they paid you less. And then ultimately flipping over to being a startup in which I paid for the privilege of the job. but it worked. And it worked because again, I think the risk of doing or not doing so is probably mispriced. Um, I think there's a lot of risk to going into a corporate law firm and staying there for 40 years, but that depends how you define risk. Um, So I would encourage people. I've said this for years, guys, I would take virtually any job. If I was a 25 year old leaving school or, and I've said that do you agree at a Google, at a Microsoft, at an Amazon? I don't think there was a bad job in the building at, at, at Netflix ten years ago. Um, so I'd be now the more I've done this, I'd be super focused on not my near-term six to twelve-month job or title, but on the roadmap. Right? Time flies, and so and it, you know that's something I'd pay close attention to. Where am I joining, and are we aligned? And do they have the capital to be great? That's not a big problem if you're talking hyperscalers, but if you're talking some other stuff, I encourage people to join startups all the time, but you got it. Okay. What's in it for you. You can always go get a job at, you know, pick a great fortune 50. Got to be better than that. Because right. I have a good buddy. Who's at one of the very, very largest you know, fortune 20. He's got a great job. He makes a lot of money. He has ridiculously good benefits. He has four weeks of paid vacation. He has on and on and on. So, right. I, If you're going to give that up, Right, but for yeah. what you really well, have i think to and do i think it. there's
1: so many stories of you know people that have you know given those types of things up for you know some type of future compensation some options that never materialize that you know it and it ends in and and in a way that you know really unfortunately you know tarnishes um you know the the real benefit and the camaraderie and the flexibility that that could come along with going to startups but uh you know you hear more about um you know the the failures than you do the successes when it comes to <laughs> Um, some of those guys, anyone that, that doesn't believe that go to Yelp and see uh, whether the good reviews outweigh the bad reviews. Um, uh, if you had something, and, and, and we're going we're gonna to wrap this up here with um, Tony talking to a younger Tony. Um, so, you know, we got it. Preparation, all that stuff. Is there something that you would tell to your younger self um, that you would do differently, or um, or or just that you would get out of your own way, or or or, or whatever that you think might benefit uh, our audience. Yeah, I
2: appreciate that. Um, the answer is yes. A lot of things. I, I even I keep a book of lessons learned on every deal, on every interaction commercially. What have I learned? I think to summarize it, Bill, and to sort of generalize it a bit, and and some of it showed up in the. The prior couple of suggestions, but I'd give a lot of thought about do you want your boss's job, right? Or, you know, if you're interviewing for a job, do you want the interviewer's job? Do you like, do you fundamentally to your core believe in who they are and what they're doing? Because authenticity works and sells and succeeds, and being fake doesn't. So you got to love it. You got to love what you're doing. I dare say you got to be willing to, I would have built it. I don't know about you. I, I would have dealt with peering agreements and customers and ISPs for free. I enjoyed it so much. I know that sounds crazy. I just thought it was cool to see the internet being built and pieced together one network at a time. And, you know, we did some stuff and were able to stop getting all of Arizona's traffic to hairpin off a California and back. Right. I'd emailed somebody across the street and it would bounce off Palo Alto. Um, and that was so so to your question. If you love something, do more of it. If you hate something, do less of it quickly. Get out of it, be decisive. It never gets better. If it's bad, it's bad. Um, Worry less about near-term title and comp. Does it really matter if you make $4,000 more this year? I'm not trying to be cavalier about it. I'm just saying in the context of a three to five year plan, you shouldn't be focused on one of the five years. You should be focused on all five of the five plus years. and then other than that i would just say people great people get things done period and i think virtually every entrepreneur i know um would tell you this that if they had it it, when they look back there was just a key group of people who probably did a huge amount of the heavy lifting and so just finding people that you love and you want to work with and that will you know That you don't mind their bad days and they don't mind your bad days and you just are all in it together is, I think, the key to success. And I mean, I'll have some of these gigantic, gigantic companies who do it because it's not easy, right? It's not easy in a couple locations. I'm sure it's very hard in 80 countries, right?
1: Uh, no question about it. Well, I can tell you that we are uh, absolutely thrilled that you've come on, and and even more that you are a Nomad Futurist super fan. Um, and I can tell you, Thank certainly you. after this, it was true before, but certainly after this meeting, uh, the Nomad Futurists are a Tony Wanger super fan. Super fan.
2: Well, that's wonderful of you to say. So the feelings mutual, and uh, keep up the great work, guys. I love what you're doing, and I think the industry badly needs it.
0: So it's great stuff. Thanks so much, man. Thank you very much, Tony. A lot of questions, guys. Take care. This has been great, nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.